Once upon a time, in a land far away. I'm Katrina, and I'm Jeff, and welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to our longtime listeners, and also welcome to some new listeners, because we are participating in a fun collaboration for the month of Spooktober, also known as October. We are collaborating with a bunch of other podcasts to put together some excellent spooky material for you to get into the spooky season mood. Our friends over at Alluring are the ones that have put this whole thing together. They have a podcast where they also talk about folklore, urban legends, cryptids, and all sorts of interesting things around the world. So if you're into the stuff that we talk about, you might be interested in the stuff that they talk about as well. So it's really cool to get together with people that like the same types of things that we like to collaborate on a really fun and interesting project for the month of October. Not to mention like October, what I like to do is like I like to go deep, fully immersive into just as many like creepy, fun stories like as possible. And what's great is that the Spotify playlist that they're putting together is going to be covering a lot of different topics. So you don't have to go looking around for like the next thing. Because Jeff and I can only create so many podcasts. (laughs) So there will be a link to the playlist in our show notes, as well as a mid-roll plug with more information about the playlist and this month-long project. So if you're interested, go there to check it out. And again, to all of you new listeners to our podcast, welcome. We are the Fairy Tellers. My name is Jeff. And I'm Katrina. And we here like to talk about folklore. Myths, legends. You might have heard it at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) Yeah, so normally in an episode, what we like to look at are any interesting fairy tales, folk tales, myths, legends, and then definitely the cultures that produce them. And so we're really excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about Japanese ghosts and the culture in Japan that makes these ghosts specific to them. And one thing that I love about what we do on our podcast is, number one, Katrina does a ton of research into the culture and the folklore history. I know nothing. I just come to make jokes and learn. But also, I love how we kind of get into the tradition of folklore as an oral tradition of storytelling, where we'll retell you the stories that we come across kind of in our own words, our own style, and we like to have fun with it. We'll make jokes. We also get into some really interesting like scholarship. So it's like a kind of an interesting mix of fun, funny, and lighthearted. But we talk about some really interesting stuff that is based in some hard academic study as well. So it's like a fun combo. And what's interesting, this episode, I absolutely do have just a big old stack of books that I will be giving you guys references so that you can find them if you're interested. So thanks again for coming and enjoy the episode. Welcome to this extra special, extra spooky episode of the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Yeah, we're super excited to be getting into spooky season. I've been doing like a mini little project on Instagram this year where I'm posting about the different days on what's considered the pagan like wheel of the year. 
because there are so many like European fairy tales that line up with these points on the seasonal calendar. And most people know one of them, which is Samhain or All Hallows Eve or Halloween. (laughs) So most people are probably familiar with the concept of like Halloween and it is coming up and it is a time when the veil thins and ghosts and other spirits can walk among us. But, fun fact, Europe is not the only place in the world with seasonal calendars, and they aren't even the only ones who have specific times to expect the unexpected from their dead. (laughs) (laughs) So today, we are going to be turning our attention to Japan and Japanese ghost stories. Yeah. They got some good ones over there in Japan. And I believe last year we touched on tsunami ghosts, which was super fascinating. We t- like last year it was our like our, our urban legends episode that we did. We talked about the tsunami ghosts uh, in Japan, and we will be revisiting that topic at the end of this episode. Ooh, nice. So I'm going to be quoting from a book a lot this episode that is called Ghosts and the Japanese. So this is a book that was written in 1994 by Bear Tolkien, who is an American folklorist. And he worked with some Japanese scholars as well to write this book, because what he was writing on wasn't just like a collection of ghost stories. What he was looking at was the cultural experience that is related inside of ghost stories which when i was reading kind of like the synopsis for that book i was like oh i definitely want this book (laughs) because if there's anything people need to know about me it's that i i love a good like like editor's note or author's note at the beginning of like a book and this book was basically like entirely an author's note (laughs) so this book when i you know read the synopsis for it i was like i Want this book? Have to have it. (laughs) Luckily, I was able to find it online because it's put out by uh, a university press. And so those are typically like harder to find. But I just want to like recommend this book to other people if you're interested. Ghosts in the Japanese. Yeah, it's a really interesting read if that's what you're into. All right. So I'm going to start off with a quote from Ghosts in the Japanese. Before the advent of Buddhism in Japan, there already was a custom of inviting the spirits of ancestors back to their homes twice a year, spring and fall, always in connection with the full moon. Thus, the basic custom possesses the character of an ancestor veneration festival, which has much in common with the New Year's observance. Mm. And I'm going to tell you about... One of those festivals, really quick, and the story that goes behind this festival, the story is going to be a tool for later. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to talk a little bit about the Japanese Obon Festival. Nice. It's related to the Chinese Ghost Festival in that all throughout, like, Asia, Southeast Asia, there are these festivals for ghosts to honor family members descendants um so that's kind of like what it is jeff lived in japan for a couple years did you ever go to like any of these like festivities yeah well it's interesting because 
I remember, and this was when I was like not in Japan for a super long time, but there was this really cool, like a group of dancers and these people that were playing like these traditional like Japanese instruments, like flutes and and stuff. And they would come into your house and do this like kind of like this dance. And it was supposed to be this whole thing of like, it's coming in to like scare away all the evil spirits from your house. And that was kind of like, you know, this like service that this group would do going around. And they were like dressed up in these really cool costumes of like the, I think it was the Oshishi, the like lion looking uh, creatures that are like so really fierce and they're supposed to scare away any evil spirits so that you're going to start the new year off fresh, no evil spirits around, just the good ones, just the friendly ones. Yeah, like just the family. Yeah, like, as far as I understood it, which uh-huh. again, may not be very much. And I'm super excited to hear like an actually like researched <laughs> perspective on it because this is all just gathered through like people explaining to me, usually in Japanese, which I did not speak super well a lot of the time. So I may be completely off base with what I think a lot of this stuff is all about. But those memories stick in my mind very well. I mean, like the Obon Festival stuff was some of the coolest stuff that I saw as far as like the rituals and the and the ceremonies and even like the food. The one kind of festival that I participated in, we went to someone's house. We saw the the dancers and the people coming in and playing the instruments and then we went, like, as the sun set, we went over to, like, one of the local, like, temples. And the shrine was, like, lit up with so many, like, lanterns and all of this stuff everywhere. It was, like, absolutely gorgeous. And, again, that's one of the things I'm saying. It's like Thanksgiving and that families gathering together. Like, we, there's a big thing. You know, we have, like, the holiday traffic is horrible this year. Look at this interstate in Los Angeles or whatever. It's, like, they have stuff like that on the news in Japan during Obon. It's, like... People are traveling at like one kilometer an hour because everyone's trying to travel home for Obom. Yeah, because it's also very important to be close to home. So what I was reading was that at the the festival is about like three days long and it can take place in kind of like a, a, a range of time depending on like the area just because of different things that happened in their histories that kind of shifted when on the calendar they would like have it. But Obon would usually be sometime between July and September, depending on like the region that you are. Some follow a moon cycle where it lines up with like a lunar cycle. And then other people have moved it to like a set day in August. And so for the three days on the first day, they will light candles at the shrines, the cemeteries, sometimes lighting lights basically all the way back into like where their house is. Sometimes if they can't, you know, go all the way out doing that, they would just light a light inside of their house. And it was to guide their ancestors back to them. So on the last day, the lights are also very important because normally what they'll do is they will put a light on something that can like float on water and, you know, let it float away. And that's them kind of letting their ancestors go back to where they were, you know, before the festival, just so that, you know, there's this time where they're welcoming even the deceased family like into their homes. and then like a ritual to do to help guide them back. So the lights are like super, super important. There is a Buddhist story that is related 
to this festival and I'm going to tell it fairly quickly and it will be important later on in the episode because everybody knows how much I love (laughs) not giving out useless information. I hope everybody knows. So there is a story about one of the disciples of Buddha whose parents were deceased and he had some kind of like I'm going to say the word psychic ability, but I want people to know that that's probably closer to like a failure of cross-cultural translation uh-huh. because it, he wasn't psychic in the way that we would that w- that we would really think of psychics in the western world, but he basically like had a gift that helped him to see into other worlds because he wanted to look for his parents and see where they ended up after they died. He kind of He wanted Mm. to know like where they were. And when he looked for his father, he found that his father was had been lifted up to basically a, a higher step on the ladder to, you know, reaching full enlightenment and like nirvana. So he saw, you know, his dad was doing really well. He'd been bumped up to this kind of like next stage on the ladder. But then when he was looking for his mother, He couldn't find his mother anywhere. And so he went to the Buddha and he told him, you know, oh, I can't find my mother. I can't see her. She's like beyond my sight. I don't know where she went. And so Buddha helped him to find his mother. But what he found out very much upset him because his mother had fallen into the realm of hungry ghosts, which is uh it's on it's a it's a huge step down on on the ladder of kind of like the direction that your soul would want to go yeah and so she was suffering and he obviously this son this like deeply devoted son was very concerned about this so he went back to the buddha and told him what he had seen and didn't know what to do because you know he wanted to do something to help his mother And the Buddha instructed him that what he should do is that he should make offerings basically in the name of his mother to the Buddhist monks that instead of trying to like give alms like directly to his mother because he didn't like that she was suffering like as a hungry ghost. But instead of trying to like offer her alms, what he should be doing is giving alms to like the Buddhist monks in the name of his mother, like for her sake and have them recite sutras in her name for her so that she would be able to kind of like earn more reward. And so this disciple of Buddha, he did that. And when he did this, and then he tried, you know, looking for his mother again, he found that she was able to, basically be like pulled out of that and taken to like a a better place. And it says that he was so happy to like see his mother released from her suffering that he started to dance a dance of joy. And that became known as the Obon Odori. But that is the dance that like is still Done. So it's like a dance of joy and a dance of like helping your ancestors to 
be better off like in their like situation. So that's the story that kind of is directly related to that festival. And it's going to be very important for us to remember because this story and the stories that we're kind of like going to go through, they give us an idea of like the wealth of cultural information that is found when we look at a cultural group's ghost stories and why they're important to study. So I have a quote from a different book. It turns out I do read a lot of books. This one is called Haunting Experiences, Ghosts and Contemporary Folklore, and it is by Diane Goldstein, Sylvia Ann Greider, and Jeannie Banks Thomas. And this is also put out by uh, a university press, Utah State University Press. And inside of this book, they say... Ghost beliefs reflected conceptions of the afterlife, cultural understandings about land use and home construction, concerns about morality and human responsibility, ideas about proper grieving and respect and treatment of the dead, and any manner of culturally based issues that endowed items of belief with meaning and power. So when we look at ghost stories, we can find out a lot about a culture. Like, what it says, like their concerns with morality and human responsibility, mm-hmm. like ideas about proper grieving, showing respect, how we treat the dead. All of these are really important. And it's interesting because usually when we're talking about ghost stories in a kind of like colloquial setting, they're seen as like almost frivolous and ridiculous stories. So It's interesting when you actually look at them, how much cultural information is encoded inside of the stories that you're looking at. Absolutely. Even you just saying that right now, it just like clicks in my brain that, of course, and it makes sense that we wouldn't recognize it being like inside of one culture. And it's like, oh, of course, this is how ghost stories are. Like this is, these are ghost stories. It's not until you compare them to other ghost stories from other places that you start to see like, oh, these are very different. And I think about too, you know, we have a lot of stuff here in the United States. If you go to these like historic towns, they have all these things about like ghost tours. Like if you're in like the Southeast, like Charleston and Savannah, they're like, you can go on ghost tours and it's always something that happened a hundred, 200 years ago, very violent, very horrible things. And that's why these ghosts are sticking around. And it's like, when you think about it, it's like so much of like history is tied into it as well. And like the, the time period that the ghosts tend to come from is also really interesting and how it varies from place to place. Cause it's not like you're going around. It's like, Oh, this is like the ghost of a woman that was murdered in this alleyway in the 1980s. It's like, no, it was like an enslaved person from like, 1857 or something like that. Yeah, a lot a lot of the ghost stories that are found inside of the United States are linked with cultural and national guilt, which is really interesting to study and to look at because if you think about the stories that are linked with things like slavery and insane asylums. Oh yeah. How how people were treated inside of them, which like we look back on that now and we understand that was deplorable. Like we understand that slavery, inexcusable, absolutely deplorable. Like the, the things that we look at 
now and we are racked with like a lot of guilt. Also, the idea of Native American burial grounds oh, yeah. is something that uh, white Americans came up with. It, it came out of like white American guilt about the amount of people that were murdered by the like settlers. Yeah. But yeah, it's fascinating because a lot of our and it goes back to also like the the people who are living in North America now, the like white Europeans, we have not been here like that long, historically speaking. And so most of our ghosts are not old. <laughs> like Yeah, not like ancient. And so like it's just interesting how much of it can be linked back to just a cultural guilt. Which is what you were pointing out. It's interesting when you go from like looking at the, you know, like US, North American, white idea of like ghosts versus like another country like Japan's ghosts. Definitely. I'm excited to see what we can learn. So Jeff and I have had really great conversations like in our past um, about like death, dying, loss and ghosts. And so before we get like too into our subject today, uh, I wanted to kind of say where we sit on the spectrum between believing in ghosts and like not believing in ghosts. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things that's kind of like, yeah, we have talked about it a lot and I have an ever evolving opinion and thought process about it, but I definitely believe in some kind of spirits. Like I'm religious, I'm a Christian, And so I believe in like an afterlife and like that our spirits kind of continue on, you know, like we talk a lot on this podcast about times when like the veil between the living and the dead is thin, like around Halloween or at Yule in the winter. Like, I don't know how much there is of spirits being able to like interact with us, you know, and how much I believe like the actual like kind of like ghost stories that you hear if those are real quote unquote ghosts or not. I've experienced things like in my own life that definitely seem very like ghostly as far as like your typical ghost story of like seeing figures late at night, like in places or also like situations where I feel like I've kind of like had a connection with someone like a family member who's passed on. But again, it's like hard for me to judge. Like we're experiencing something, but what that something is, is hard to define. I think we talked about it with this like common phenomenon of these like spirits that come to you while you're sleeping that tend that actually have been identified to be associated with like sleep paralysis, because that's a thing that happens to humans all over the world. And so that's why all over the world, we have these customs about this really weird and crazy and scary thing that happens that we don't understand until we do, you know? Yeah. So for people who, uh, cause I can't remember if we've how in depth we've talked about this, like on the podcast and how much we talk about it, like personally, but you're talking about David Hufford's work with like the old hag tradition. He wrote a book that was called the terror that comes in the night. And it's about this like experience that he was noticing people in a lot of different places from a lot of different like beliefs were experiencing where they would be asleep and then they would wake up feeling like a pressure like on their chest holding them down and either 
they like they would see a variety of different things, whether it was like a demonic child or like an old crone hag, like sitting on their chest, like holding them down. And it was like a terrifying experience for them. And David Hufford was, you know, looking at these like different accounts and stuff and realizing, you know, all of these people were having real experiences to like what they were, they were experiencing something because like, how could all these people all have like this, like same experience. And so he called his approach at looking at like things like ghost stories or like, you know, like this, like old hag, he termed this like approach as an experience centered approach because he's like, these people are experiencing something, whether it was something supernatural or not, they were all experiencing something. And it, it ended up sleep paralysis is like a thing. And it's funny because I see so many like memes online about it where they're like, oh, here's what my sleep paralysis demon looks like or like whatever. Uh, and and it'll be like just like a weird <laughs> like yeah. poorly taxidermied squirrel like in a corner or something like that. And, and they're just, you know, making fun of like their sleep paralysis uh, demons. Yeah. I love that that's a situation too where it's like these two kind of things. Like even now that we have an understanding of like physiologically what is going on and even somewhat like psychologically, I guess like the fact that that still has become like fused with the folklore of the past. Like it's not like, Oh, this is here now. So we're just going to replace the old thing. It's like, no, we're going to combine these two things into one. We know what it is, but we're still going to call it a sleep paralysis demon because like, that's something that was talked about in the past. So it's like, I love that. Yeah. And it's crazy because like, even though now we have like a term for it, we're like, Oh yeah. Sleep paralysis. Like what people are experiencing is like they still do feel that terror and like sometimes see things that are like, you know, sitting on their chest or whatever. And so it's like to completely dismiss the experience yeah. is is wrong. Right. Like, does it mean that everything literally happens the way that people explain it does? Maybe or maybe not. There's a lot of stuff that we like do not understand. Yeah, I feel like it's a really good way to kind of exactly what you already mentioned, but it's a really good way to let us be able to express that same like inexplicable terror and horror that we feel. And I say we, I've actually never experienced sleep paralysis. Thank goodness. But to still be able to express that in a way that is very like emotive and like I imagine kind of cathartic to be able to say it in that kind of strong terminology. Like you said, and not yeah. just be like, oh, it's just this medical anomaly that happens. But it's like acknowledging the craziness of the experience. Yeah, it's still a deeply unsettling experience. But it is like, you know, thank goodness, you know, that that we have words uh, and like an explanation for what it is. Um, so that, you know, you don't have to be in terror of like, was I possessed? Am I currently possessed? Do You know, like, it's nice to have like, you know, the scientific knowledge about something, but it does not take away, you know, the experience like happening. But since I yanked out this book, I am going to read a quote from it because it's super applicable. This book is called Folklore Rules, a fun, quick and useful introduction to the field of academic folklore studies. And it really is like a fun book if people want to look it up. Lynn S. McNeil wrote it seems like that title's got like a double meaning like folklore rules as in like these are the rules for folklore but also like folklore rules because we're awesome because we study folklore 
That's exactly what it is. <laughs> Love it. It's very fun. Um, so the quote that I have highlighted that is very applicable to right now is, it's very easy when you encounter supernatural folk beliefs to dismiss them, especially if you yourself aren't inclined to believe in such things. But it's imperative that you remember that people can be rational without being correct. You don't need to agree with their conclusions about what they witnessed or experienced in order to accept that they may have accurately described what they witnessed or experienced. Oh, man. that I love that quote. Oh, yeah. Because not only is it applicable to folklore and specifically what we're talking about today, but I just feel like life in general. Like there have been situations in my life where I have friends or family or whoever that they're like expressing something and like their view on whatever it may be, like a situation or whatever. And like I've realized, like, just because I don't agree with how they're interpreting it doesn't mean that it's not logical. Like from their experience, it is logical and reasonable and whatever. And it's like I may be the illogical and unreasonable one in their mind because my experience is completely different. So it's like that's something I feel like I've like learned. And again, it's like you apply it to folklore. You can apply it to just like (laughs) interpersonal relationships. Like good quote. Yes. And, like, I kind of wanted to, like, have this as kind of a starting place for us on the episode because it's actually one of the things that I love about folklore studies, and that is this attitude towards looking at legends and folktales, like, out of pure interest, not out of saying, like, you're wrong or you're delusional or, like, hmm, why do these people, like think this way yeah um folklorists like aren't there to say i believe this story happened with every fiber of my being (laughs) or even this could never happen and here let me tell you why like the thing that is interesting to them when they're like listening to the story is they're like why are people telling this story why is this story so important to them yeah and it's not to say that like the story never happened But what's interesting to them is, like, why the story persists. It's the same way, like, we all have kind of, like, family folk tales inside of our own families, you know, about us when we were little kids, that our parents will tell us. And those stories are probably true. But what's interesting is looking at why do we we tell tell the stories that we tell. Like, that's what's, like, interesting. And that's the same thing with when folklorists are listening to and collecting these, like, old ghost stories. Yeah. Or even contemporary ghost stories. They want to know, like, why are people telling this story? Why is this story so important to them? And so I wanted people to know, like, that is the lens that we are going to be looking at these like ghost stories that we're going to be telling because yeah, we're not here to be like, wow, how can Japanese people believe these things? Or (laughs) how can Americans believe these things or whatever? Like, no, we're just interested in like what cultural information is like inside of these stories. And so in ghosts and the Japanese, the author also says To folklorists and social historians, however, a legend represents an articulate dramatization of cultural meaning, quite regardless of the extent to which it contains factual information. Folklorists aren't here to find out what's true or not true. (laughs) That's not their job and it's not their concern. Nor should it be. Yeah. And going on with that. If a folk tradition such as a legend has persisted over the years, it is only because a considerable number of people have found it worth repeating to each other. 
Otherwise, it would have died out. Thus, we can reasonably assume that the legend has continued to mean something or play some important role for those who perform it. Here's another quote, even though I think we're being very quote heavy. I found a bunch of quotes in my research that I loved a lot. So <laughs> I'm going to read every single one and you can cut them out when you want. Legends are not told simply because we are gullible. This way of viewing them emerges when they are taken out of context and approached only for their entertainment or instructional value. Deprived of cultural context, legends seem superficial or even downright stupid. So we talked about this briefly earlier, but one of the very fascinating differences between Western ghost stories and Japanese ghost stories is the idea of unfinished business. In Western ghost stories, we have this idea that a ghost is likely to come back if they died in a very like sudden and tragic way because they might have unfinished business. <laughs> and if you can sort out what the unfinished business is, then you can like free that spirit to yeah, go like, on to the next on. life. Yeah. Yeah. Walk like, into here, the light. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in Japanese ghost stories, you have the same concept of unfinished business, but what that unfinished business is will be different because of different like theological and cultural beliefs and concepts of like you know what is the business that can't be left like undone so now i am going to read a ghost story this one is found in japanese tales by royal tyler and it's put out by pantheon so once in a small city in Japan, an official's wife became very ill, and she died. And she left behind a husband and three sons. Oof. So they looked after the funeral as best they could, trying to perform all of the appropriate rites for her at the appropriate times. But after seven days had gone by, they still felt... Um, disquieted in their souls. They felt like something wasn't quite right. Mm. And in Japanese, like funeral customs, the seventh day, like after somebody dies, is usually when their spirit is believed to move farther away from the home. And it usually isn't until like the 49th day when they're considered kind of like all the way departed. Right. And so they kind of expected after this seventh day that they would feel a bit better, but they were still uh, very concerned for their mother's welfare. So they lived kind of in the shadow of a volcanic mountain, and they decided that they were going to try to go up into this like volcanic mountain with a local holy man to try and figure out where their mother's soul had either gone or been reborn. So they moved up into this volcanic mountain. It said they visited hell after hell on the mountain and felt as though they themselves were burning, which makes sense on account of it was a volcanic mountain. <laughs> But it's like what an amazingly like you just like visceral image and experience. So the holy man that was with them was trying to keep away these like tormented, unhappy um, spirits that were coming up out of this like volcanic mountain. And so he was having to 
preach a lot of the Lotus Sutra. And so you can think of sutras as kind of like scriptures. Gotcha. And so he was trying to, you know, preach those and recite those kind of like nonstop just to keep them safe from kind of the the spirits that were coming. And as these boys, these sons were like looking around, they saw in a spot the lights dimmed a little bit and they heard like a voice calling out to the eldest son. And at first, obviously, they were like, terrified because it was like (laughs) yeah like oh no who's like yelling out our name and so they tried to ignore it and like not acknowledge it because in a lot of who is yelling out our name from the pit of hell (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and usually like to acknowledge like kind of like an evil unquieted spirit Uh is to kind of invite harm like on yourself and so they were trying to like ignore the voice but finally it sounded so much like their mother as it was like getting louder that they turned and they saw their mother like floating in front of them. Mm. And she, you know, kind of said like, like, how could you ignore your own mother? How could you not listen to me? And then like when she knew that she had their attention, she was like, in life, I was mean and I committed a lot of sins. I spoke against other people. I was cruel to other people. I did things that were wrong. And now I'm suffering endless and unspeakable agony. And the sons, as they were like hearing this, what I thought was funny was they were kind of like, oh yeah, she was kind of mean. Like <laughs> <laughs> in her life. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, she, she wasn't kind to other people like a lot in her life. Like there were things that because like our dad was like an official, she would like take advantage, like, you know, of her position and stuff. So they're kind of like remembering like, oh yeah, that is true. And so they asked her like, how can we help you? Like what, what can be done now for you? And she said that there is no easy way for them to lighten the suffering that she'd brought upon herself for the things that she had done. And they said all they could do for her was if they went and they copied down a thousand times the Lotus Sutra and dedicated them all to her in a single day. Oh, dang. And the sons knew that, like, you know, it would take all day to write one copy of the Lotus Sutra, let alone 10 or 100 or even like a thousand. That was like impossible. And that's super fascinating that it's a thousand because there's that whole story of like the paper cranes, like the thousand paper cranes. Yes. It's like makes me wonder, like, what is it with the number 1000 that's so important? Yeah, the thousand, like, it is interesting because it's basically like just one of those numbers that just means a lot, a, a giant number. Yeah. yeah, it's like, what's a ridiculous number? A thousand, like, in certain situations. Yeah, and like, what is that? It's like, is, is two a lot? It depends. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, because it is like, is four a lot? And they're like, that depends. It's from Doctor Who. Yeah. And they're like paper cranes? No. Heart attacks? Yes. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> Or something like that. Yeah, basically that, yeah. So, you know, they all kind of realized, oh, this would be just like like an impossible thing. It was basically their mother saying, like, there's, there's nothing no way. to be done. Yeah. There's no way in this burning volcano pit of hell that you're gonna be able to bring me back. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And so they decided that, you know, they could at least do something. And the holy man with them told them that, like, anything that they could do would help to, like, alleviate 
their mother's suffering, even if it was just by like a degree and that they should do it. And so they went home and they told their father like what they had heard and their father like acknowledged that like, yeah, that would be an impossible goal, but maybe a more possible goal for them if they enlisted help would be a hundred. Like if they could copy down the Lotus Sutra a hundred or 300 times that like it would do something to help their mother. And basically the governor of the province, when he heard what had happened, he called the father and he wanted to like hear the story. And so the father went and he told him the story and they picked a day when everybody in that province and all the neighboring provinces would sit and they copied down a thousand Lotus Sutras, like as a like wider and greater community. And the boys knowing that now that their mother could be delivered from her torment were happy. And the eldest son ended up having a dream that night that his mother, it says exquisitely beautiful came to him and told him that their love and their care for her was able to, have her be reborn into the Tory heaven. And then in the dream, she like flew up into the sky and the eldest son told everybody from miles around the story of what happened to his mother. Oh, I love that. Yes. (laughs) I love it too. Even though, you know, I guess his mom wasn't that great of a person. Right. But she, (laughs) but First of all, for like the the point of like this episode, it's like, what does this story teach us about the Japanese culture? One of the most obvious things that it teaches is what our responsibility as family members and then as a wider community is in our responsibility to the dead. Mm -hmm. And that is something where in like Western religion, We differ in the idea of this, like, unfinished business and, like, what our responsibility is as, like, a living person. So the authors of Ghosts in the Japanese write, Our impression after working on this project for some 13 years is that death is not only a common subject in Japanese folklore, but seems indeed to be the principal topic in Japanese tradition. Nearly every festival, every ritual, every custom is bound up in some way with relationship between the living and the dead, between the present family and its ancestors, between the present occupation and its forebears. We would venture the hypothesis that death is the prototypical Japanese topic not only because it relates living people to their ongoing heritage, but also, as the legends we've selected show, because death brings into focus a number of other very important elements in the Japanese worldview. Obligation, duty, debt, honor, and personal responsibility. Wow. That, like, in this story, it shows that, like, when Japanese people are alive, they have, like, an obligation and a duty to their family, like who are alive, who are like around them. They also have that same set of like duties and obligations to their like local community and even their like governmental leaders. Like they are all tied together by obligations and duties, honor that needs to be paid to people. But then even after somebody dies, they're still connected to that person. They still have 
responsibilities to that person that can't be severed by death. Yeah. And so like in this story, it's beautiful because you have these sons who their mother died. And by her own account, she wasn't like a great person. And also, you know, her predicament kind of showed that like on a spiritual level, whoever was in charge of that also agreed. (laughs) Um, But like those sons were still like, no, we have like an obligation to like our mother to help her to have her best possible like afterlife. And then the community moving outward also was like, you know what? We have, we have an obligation to this woman, even if, you know, she wasn't that great. Like they were like, there's something that we can do to like help this person. And we're all tied together. We're all in this together. And so like, what can we do to help this person? Yeah, that's so cool. It's really interesting too, because as you were talking about this whole like duty and obligation that extends beyond death, it reminded me of the 47 Ronin episode that we talked about, which they talk about that being like, you know, one of the the stories that epitomizes Japanese culture, Japanese society. And in that it's, you've got these people who were duty bound to their Lord who had died to like basically avenge him, you know, yeah. and it's like, and then they did going so far as taking it to their own deaths. And then also like people that then kind of felt a connection and duty and obligation to those 47 Ronin who had done that people who had either wronged them or whatever people who felt like they were in similar situations, like, also felt that kind of like duty and obligation towards these people who had died sometimes like hundreds of years later. Just like, yeah, that's so interesting. And it was like, it really does start making all these ideas connect with like things we talked about the podcast before my own experiences of Japanese culture and just other stuff that I've heard and experienced. It's like, Ooh, that is, that is so true. Yeah. I mean, and I thought it was interesting how much that that story goes back to the story uh, from the, Obon festival where it's like this follower of Buddha who, you know, has this mother and it does not say that she admitted to doing like anything bad at any of the versions that like I read, but she had ended up in this like realm of hungry ghosts, this like bad, like a step, (laughs) several steps down and was like suffering. And this son who like wanted to do what he could to like free her. And so like, these stories having so much similarity with each other also reinforces cultural beliefs. Yeah. Like, again, this isn't to say that the stories aren't true or that the stories like are true, but when these stories line up with what people already believe to be true, it, it reinforces like the, that cultural narrative of like, this can happen to your mom it happened to this person who, you know, was close to Buddha. It happened to this person who lived in such and such a province. Like, it could happen to any of our moms. And yeah. so we all need to make sure that, like, when, like, somebody dies, we are, like, reading the sutras for them. We're doing all we can to, like, alleviate their suffering from our end. And so then, you know, if somebody else comes and they have, an experience like similar, it again will reinforce like that cultural belief of like, oh, like it's still like it still goes on. That is so fascinating because it reminds me of there's this movie that is a great movie. It's like a stop motion movie from like 
2016. It's called Kubo and the Two Strings. And it's very heavily inspired by like Japanese folklore. It's done by uh, Leica. They're the same ones that did like Paranorman and Coraline. Oh, yep. Anyway, but in that, the story centers around the Obon Festival where like this kid is like, oh, he, he wants to talk to family members who have passed on. And he's like kind of frustrated because it doesn't end up happening. This whole adventure in- ensues. And then at the end, a bunch of people come together. Essentially, like you were saying, like the community around Kubo comes together to like somewhat redeem this like, spoiler alert, villain of the story. You know, instead of like fighting back against him, the way that they resolve the conflict is by like redeeming this person, like coming together as a community to redeem them and let them like pass on peacefully. And it's just like, wow, like they really must have done their research when they're making this movie. And it's like, it <laughs> makes so much more sense. You know, it's like, yeah. wow, that really, it does tie in really, really in a really cool way. So strong recommendation because it is a really awesome and very beautifully done movie. And if you're into Japanese folklore and Japanese stuff, again, it's not Japanese folklore, but lots of Japanese inspiration, obviously, was taken in making it. If you are wanting more Halloween lore, legends, or spooky ghost stories in your life, like the one you're listening to today, then look no further. Hi everyone, my name is Kimmy, and I'm here with my co-host Ryan. Hey guys, we're the hosts of the podcast Alluring, and we're currently hosting an Alluring Halloween. So we went ahead and collaborated with some of our favorite podcasts to create a special playlist with a collection of Halloween lore, legends, and ghost stories just for you. And throughout the month of October, we will be adding episodes to get you all in the spooky season mood. Think of it as your go-to Halloween podcast playlist. You can listen to it today by going to Spotify and searching an Alluring Halloween. That's A-L-O-R-E-I-N-G. Or simply go to our website, Alluring.com, and we'll have a direct link there. So go check it out and enjoy the collection of spooky Halloween lore, legends, and ghost stories today. So another quote from Ghosts in the Japanese. Understanding the legends in this book requires the readers, listeners, to understand and accept the values which are thought to keep a soul in this zone until a problem is properly resolved. In other words, it is not enough simply to acknowledge that the Japanese may believe in ghosts. Ghosts are thought to express certain dilemmas which require cultural acceptable solutions. So, like, when we say, oh, the, the Japanese believe in ghosts, we believe in ghosts, too. Yeah, lots of people <laughs> have, throughout like, story <laughs> throughout the world, like, believe in ghosts. But what we have to, like, look at to understand the stories is, you know, what the cultural dilemmas are and what the culturally acceptable solutions to, like, those problems are. And so, you know, in our own... um like in in a lot of like western stories if we see somebody who has done a lot of wrong and isn't like and is still kind of existing in this you know plane of existence it's usually like our narrative is to say like oh because like they know that they've done wrong and so they don't want to go to hell and so they're staying in this spot so that they can keep being evil or whatever like there isn't a a kind of like a theological idea of how to get that evil person gone besides like an exorcism right you know what i mean and so it's like when you look at what the culturally accepted solution is in the story it's different from the one in like japan 
And maybe one that people wouldn't be familiar with unless, you know, they were studying the culture and like looking into it. Absolutely. I want to point out that that story has like a ghost in it. It has the mother's ghost in it. But the sons aren't scared of their mother's ghosts because there is this like cultural idea that when our family members die, they're they're not like gone, they're still with us a while. And we want them to be with us a while because like we love them and we care about them. And so since that idea already exists in Japan, uh, you know, it makes sense that in this story, they were seeking after information about their mom. When they found their mother's ghosts, they weren't scared. They're like, perfect. This is exactly what we were trying to do was find our mother's ghost. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And... So, like, it's just very interesting that this is not a ghost that they're afraid of. And that why would you be afraid of ghosts of your family members that, you know, loved you and you loved them? So then that leads us into stories about ghosts that people are afraid of. Yeah. This is why the people are here. Yes. So Forget this wholesome ghost crap. Scare the pants off of us. So this quote is coming from Haunted Japan, exploring the world of Japanese yokai, ghosts, and the paranormal. And this is by Katrin Ross. She says, So it is not the dead Japanese fear. Rather, it is the unquiet dead. That scary world of vengeful ghosts and angry demons, the realm of those who have been wronged or forgotten, and thus cannot be released from this earthly plane. So Japanese are careful to nurture the respectful connections with the living that can continue to appease the dead. And then back to the book, Ghosts and the Japanese, it says, If the deceased has been wrongfully treated, consciously injured, murdered, insulted, or the like, the ghost may wreak vengeance on the wrongdoer or, by extension, the culprit's family, clan, village, or region, even for generations. Dang. So, yeah, it's like, are Japanese there ghosts? Japanese ghosts can hold a grudge, am I right? <laughs> so now I'm going to be reading a story. Again, this is from Japanese Tales, put out by Pantheon. And I'm not going to tell you the title of this tale because it kind of gives away the end. (laughs) So there was once a man who lived in Kyoto and he was very, very poor. But then one day he found out that somebody who he had known when he was younger had been appointed to be a governor in like a distant province. So he decided what he was going to do was remind this guy that they knew each other and see if that can like (laughs) help him elevate himself into like a different status. So like his old buddy who had been turned into like a governor, he was super excited to see his new friend and was like, of course, I would love to promote you. And so that is what was done just right on the spot. He was like, sure, you can come and be here. So this man had a lovely wife. And despite everything that they had been through together, um, like all the hardships that had, you know, they'd gone through with being poor, they were pretty like inseparable with each other. But since he had gone so far away to this like other province, he had like left his wife behind. And he ended up, while he was in this new city, meeting somebody else who was like, 
younger, you know, also like wealthy, like he now was. So he's like, oh, you know what? I deserve an upgrade. I'm going to like get a new wife, you know, classic scumbag move. (laughs) So it says that after a while of like living with this other woman and she was not as high quality in her spirit as his first wife was, which I'm like, yeah, buddy, but you're not very high quality either. Are you? (laughs) Um, He decided, you know what? I really, really miss my first wife. I am going to like see when this governor might be traveling close to Kyoto. And like, I can go and see my first wife and, you know, maybe sort stuff out. I'm like this. He's taken distance relationships like a whole nother level. <laughs> so in the meantime, I guess his the governor that was his friend, his like term in that office ended, and everybody was like dispersed to go back home. So he decided, okay, now is my chance to go back to Kyoto, find my first wife, ask her forgiveness. And, you know, sort everything out. So he gets back to the city and, you know, he's looking around and he's like, wow, almost like nothing has changed in the years that I've been gone. Like, this place is like amazing. And he knew right where, you know, his house was. And he gets there. But when he gets to his house, it seems uninhabited. It's falling apart. And, you know, he gets a little worried because, like, everything is looking abandoned and he was like oh Mm -hmm. no has my wife left like has she am i not gonna be able to like find this woman and so he goes inside and he finds her laying on a mat on the floor and when he walks in the door she like turns around and looks at him and she looks so excited and like happy to see him and he just immediately was like I am so sorry that I abandoned you. That was like terrible of me. And she was like, how did you get here? Like, when did you get back? Like how, like what's going on? I haven't seen you in a really long time. (laughs) And he's like, I know. Oh my gosh. Like, I'm so sorry. I did like a horrible thing. I promise like from now on, like I'm going to live here. I'm going to be with you no matter what, like we're going to be together. And she's like, that sounds incredible. So the story says they stayed up all night long talking to each other, getting reacquainted with each other. Wank. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so they talked the whole night and, you know, they talked about what he had done for work while he was up there. And he had asked her, you know, do you have any servants that are employed here? And she's like, no, it's just been me. Like, I've, I've had to handle, like, everything by myself for all these years. And he was like, you know what? You will never have to do that again. You will never have to, like, be in charge of taking care of that. I will take care of everything. Like, I, as my, like, repentance, like, I'm here for you from now on, anything you need. And, you know, they kissed and made up and they fell asleep wrapped in each other's arms. And the next morning, the sun was, like, streaming through the windows and it, you know, the light and the warmth from the son woke up this man and he looks over at the woman in his arms and he's holding on to her dried dead bones. Oh, gross. 
I knew that was what was going to happen, though. As it always does. So the woman in his arms, all that was left of her was her dried skin covered over her dead bones. So in horror, he like jumps up and leaps back, hoping that he was just hallucinating. But no, there was just this super dead corpse woman laying in front of him. So he like frantically gets dressed and like bursts into the neighbor's house and he starts shouting and he's like, what happened to the woman who used to live next door? Like, well, what's funny, he says, there's no one there. He's like, there's no one there in that house anymore. <laughs> and they're like, oh, the woman who used to live in that house? Oh, yeah, no, her husband left her and went off to like some province. She never heard from him again. And she was so heartbroken that she just got sicker and sicker and wasted away until like last summer, she just died inside the house. But nobody knew that she had died until it was like too late. And then nobody wanted to go over to handle her body in case it wasn't like, you know, fully okay in a spiritual sense. So everybody was too afraid to like go over to that house. And so like, it's just been sitting like empty going to ruin since then. And this guy just in his absolute terror and horror <laughs> knew that there was nothing left for him in the city. And he completely like abandoned the city and left. And that's what you get. <laughs> What's the title of the story? She died long ago. <laughs> so yeah i was like i can't tell you that oh, man. <laughs> it's like the punchline um okay so again like our question is like what does this story tell us culturally like about japan that you should not abandon your family like a jerk yeah so it goes back to that like that obligation thing right yeah that's what i was just gonna say because we're the first story you read was about the obligation to your family that has passed on and this one's about hey your obligation to your family that has not passed on because you might be at fault for them passing on <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll come back as a vengeful if you're ghost not, you know yeah yeah, the idea of like the obligations that exactly what you said that you have like to the living that you you need to take care of those relationships because if the person dies while you have bad relationships, like you don't know what kind of like scary stuff could happen or like, you know, if if there'll be a revenge scenario that might go on. Um but then also at the end the story mm. is about um like proper burial. Because it basically was like this woman yeah. was in this house for like an inappropriate length of time, like dead, to the point where what was supposed to have been done for her to honor her body and like her spirit that her husband would have been in charge of if he had been like around. Yeah. None of that was able to get done. And because right. it wasn't able to get done, like her spirit is kind of stuck in this. It, she's stuck in the house. And the story kind of has, like, to me, like, a sad ending because, like, there is stuff that could be done to help her spirit, like, pass on. And so it's sad to me that her husband, like, once again, like, abandons mm -hmm. that responsibility. I mean, I understand he's very upset in this moment because yeah. he, like, you know, yeah. woke up with, like, a corpse in his <laughs> arms. 
And that's awful. <laughs> but like he needs to, you know, go to a local like holy man, monk, somebody and tell them the situation so that they can like help to convince her spirit to move on to the next location so that she can like be interred properly and like cared for now that she is dead because it's like okay she has died but that isn't what's final in like that culture there's still stuff that like can be done Mm -hmm. and so you know there's this like vengeful ghost and she's not even that vengeful she like i'm like this story is actually to me not she because she isn't like she just was like oh you came back i'm so happy because i missed you so much right (laughs) but it was all part of the vengeful (laughs) plot trick him into snuggling her yeah it was a facade well maybe i mean it it seems like that is the case right like that she was i don't know i guess you could interpret it either way like maybe the spirit like nah i don't think there's a chance like because she she was abandoned (laughs) you don't think there's a chance that she forgave you know and she like got sick and died Oh, I don't think there's a chance yeah. that she actually was happy. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like that she, that, that was her genuine feeling as a spirit. Like, oh, I'm so happy to see you that you finally came back for me. I was like, I don't think that that's what it was. Cause I don't think she would have been. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I it. don't know. But Maybe, you know, if her feelings were like sincerely, like she just wanted him to come back and then he finally did. Maybe that is what ended up like bringing her peace. I mean, it doesn't, the story does not end saying that anybody was at peace yeah. in any way. That's not how like the story ended. Yeah. So there's an argument that could be made. Yeah. Whether, whether she's vengeful or like not. Yeah. Either way. But yeah, I'm like to him. Well, because it could be seen as like, she purposefully tricked him. Yeah. To snuggle her dead corpse so that he would like be horrified. Yeah. Uh, That's how I interpreted it. Like, and it's interesting because sometimes like stories like this where somebody has like an encounter like that with like a vengeful ghost, even if they get away from that ghost, they like slowly start to like lose, lose their minds. Like they start slowly going kind of like insane. Yeah, like she was really trying to maximize the psychological terror by making it a good thing so that like lifting him up so he had that much further to fall when he realized what he had done to her in like abandoning her and her dying. So you're on the side of like, nope, she knew what she was doing and she was making him pay. Yes. Oh, yeah. One hundred percent. All right. And I'm okay with that because I think that he should. (laughs) He should suffer. You get what you deserve. So that last story shows us kind of what happens when a kind of an individual does not take care of their social obligations or their familial like obligations. But now we're going to look at a story of a a vengeful ghost over a wider area, shall we say. So there was once a mountain hermit that lived near this small village. And this mountain hermit, he was said to, what he would do is he would make little charms that he would say were protecting the people of the village or keeping them safe from like other spirits or helping them with their crops growing. But everybody kind of felt like he was more or less just a creepy nuisance. And so the governor 
of this village decided, okay, you know what? This guy, he's been hanging around and being creepy and weird for like too long. Like it said, his doings were too strange for the governor of the village. So they arrested the hermit and they threw him into prison. But that didn't make the governor feel any better because this guy was still saying that he was like communicating with people, you know, from the other side talking with spirits, doing all this. So this governor was feeling even more like unsure about this guy. And so he decided that he was going to sentence him to an execution. So when the governor went and told one of his officials who would be doing the execution, he told him like, okay, I need you to go and execute this guy. And the the official was like, um, I don't really feel comfortable doing that. Like, I, I would feel really uncomfortable. This guy, you know, I don't know what magic stuff, like, he's into or not. Like, I don't know if we should be just, like, just killing people. I feel really uncomfortable doing it. And he was like, you know what? No. I am the governor. You're going to do what I say. You're going to go execute this guy. So the official took his sword, and he went over to the mountain hermit who was, like, inside this prison. And he was like... Okay, they've the governor has ordered me to kill you, but I want you to know that, like, I don't want to kill you. I'm going to be the one that kills you because that's my job, but, like, I don't want to do it, so please don't be mad at me. And the hermit said, Do you not know when a servant goes out to cut bamboo in the early morning on orders from his master, whose feet will get wet with the dew? Which I'm like, dang. So the official, obviously, that, like, spooked him, but he was like, I have to do this. And the hermit was like, well, then I want you to know that when your family or any of the families in this town try to plant their sweet potato, from generation to generation, the flowers will bloom on the vine, but no potatoes will grow and your families will never prosper. And after he spoke those words, the official was even more terrified now, but he knew what he had to do. And so he cut off the head of this hermit. And then later that year, the villagers were plagued with a famine and severe sickness because of the hermit's curse on them. And they tried to hold funeral services for him at the local temple. They built a pagoda next to his grave, trying to give him as much honor as they could in his death so that what he spoke in his last moments would not come to pass. But even so, the next year, when they were gardening, their sweet potato plants bloomed and flowered, but no potatoes would grow. And to this day, the villagers who are related to this man cannot grow any food on their land. And most have had to abandon it. The end. Dang. Don't kill the magic man. (laughs) Or else you cannot grow potatoes. (laughs) So in some tales that are like this, because this is by no means like the only tale that is like this, sometimes the people are by honoring a person, because sometimes it's like a, a Buddhist monk killed on the road right outside of a town by like a random robber. Yeah. And the town will be kind of met with this like string of very bad luck. And so they will build some kind of memorial shrine to like honor that person. And that's usually when that ghost will leave. 
And also there's kind of like a, a set period of time sometimes where after a certain amount of years, I think it's 33 mm-hmm. years, the spirit is supposed to like move on. Like regardless, right. like you've been here long enough. And so like, we don't care if you haven't sorted it out in 33 years, like it's never going to happen. So just go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, d- depending on the story, there's like varying timelines, but yeah, this is like an example of a story where like a wrongdoing by someone in the community can have effects on like the whole community. Yeah. And then the community has to take responsibility for that dead person and their spirit and like do stuff to like help that spirit to get away. That's so fascinating. Like, yeah, to move on. Yeah. That is interesting because it is so different from how we think of things. And and a big difference in just like American culture and Japanese culture specifically as far as being like so this is nothing new if you've ever heard anything about either of these two countries, but like being very like individual focused like we are here in the United States and in the West and then being more family community focused than we are here in Japan and other places in the Far East in general. Yeah, like that the idea of like we're all in this together yeah. is like a, a much more concrete feeling inside of like the communities. And so it makes sense that like in their stories, what happens to a person inside of their community would affect all of them. Yeah. Because like I'm like trying to think of like a ghost story that affects like that I've heard like in the United States, like affects like a wider community. And I like I really can't. It's usually like if you've done something wrong in our ghost stories, you're usually haunted yeah. by the person that you did the wrong thing for. Or if a, a if something bad happened in a place like a house. Yeah. Then that house becomes like haunted. Right. And it's like whoever is in the house occupying it or per, like owns it, like they're responsible for getting rid of the ghost or like just getting out and making it someone else's like that's the other thing too. It's like they get out of there and it's like, oh, someone else's problem. Someone else moves in, not knowing that it's haunted. It's like, you know what I mean? Like they would never do that to you. Yeah. In Japan, which actually is a literal fact because I learned this uh fairly recently, but there's this whole thing with kind of a superstition about being the first person to live in a house that someone had passed away in in Japan. You can get like a huge discount on your rent, apparently, if you're the first person to live in a house or an apartment after someone had died in it because of that kind of like superstition. That's fascinating. But even in that situation, you know, they like let the person know like, oh, hey, just so you know, someone died in this house. So like we're going to give you a deal on this rent because we as a community understand that that's a not great situation to walk into or whatever, you know. Okay, so I want to go back to... More contemporary ghost stories. So at the beginning of the episode, Jeffrey mentioned that, you know, we had talked about tsunami ghosts in an episode last year uh, about urban legends. We were talking about like several different urban legends that people had sent in. And that was one that came up in the episode. And it was interesting because at the time we noted that like a lot of the people who were um, reporting these stories were taxi drivers who were picking up people and like driving them back into the area that had like kind of been destroyed. 
And they would even say before they started the trip, are you sure there's not, there's no one out there. There's like nothing, nothing out there. And they would drive that person out there and turn around and like, they'd be gone. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to me, you know, we talked about that and that was after the tsunami that had happened in 2011. And so it was interesting when I was reading this book that was written in 1994, they were talking about contemporary legends of Tokyo taxi drivers <laughs> picking up ghosts. Oh my gosh. I was like, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a like thing. This is, it's not, it wasn't just something that happened like just during the tsunami. Right. Taxi drivers in Japan are like constantly picking up ghosts. It's its own if, genre of ghost story. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, it's really interesting because they're very similar in how they're told as like what in probably like Western uh, urban legends we would describe as like the vanishing hitchhiker. Yeah. And like, I remember hearing stories like this when I was like obsessed with a show that was called unsolved mysteries. Mm -hmm. And there was always like vanishing hitchhiker stories. And anytime we were driving past, like, like, not well lit parts of like Louisiana when I was a kid. I was always like in my mind being like, oh, now where it's going to happen. <laughs> any second we're gonna, now. <laughs> any second. We're going to see because it just like looks so spooky. And it was funny because one time when I was like out visiting you, we were driving through like a stretch like that, like at night that we'd never been before. And there was like Spanish moss like on the trees. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and then like night had fallen and we were still kind of like out in the middle of nowhere. And I, I was like. Obviously, like I was an adult woman, but I kept thinking to myself, like, any minute now, there's going to be like some undead hitchhiker like waiting for us. And it never happened to me. So it's interesting to note that these, you know, taxi driver stories are, yeah, like a, a set of stories. And it's like, it just seems to happen. And stories like this, it's again, one of those things that's interesting because for whatever reason, in different countries around the world, people pick up ghosts in their cars. Mm -hmm. And so it goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier about those experience-centered tales where it's like, do I believe in ghosts? It doesn't really matter. What's more important is that question of like, why do, what are people experiencing where we keep picking up ghosts? Like, it must be something. Yeah. And so it's interesting to like talk about those and look at those. So the one more story that I will leave you guys with today is that there was once a Tokyo taxi driver who pulled up to a hospital and there was a young woman who was standing in front of the hospital waiting for a ride. And so he puts this young woman into the car and she asked, if he would please take her to this city kind of like farther out away. And he was like, Oh, of course, no problem. And so she gave him detailed directions of like how to get to this like one place. And when he got to the correct neighborhood that she was trying to direct him to, he looked in the mirror to ask her for the next direction to get to the house that she wanted mm -hmm. to go to. But when he looked behind him, she wasn't there. Dun, dun, dun. So at first he thought, okay, maybe she'd like fallen asleep 
or was ill, had slumped over like in the seat. So he stopped at like a traffic signal so that he could turn around and find out where she went. And so he pulled over and he looked back there and he was like feeling on the seat and the seat was like freezing cold, Mm. which is a sure sign that a ghost had been there. (laughs) So the light changed. He started going because the other drivers behind him were like, get going. So he starts moving and he's driving. But then all of a sudden he hears her voice in the back seat again. And this time she's asking to be driven to a town that's in the complete opposite direction of where they had been. So he didn't know what to do at this point, except listen to her directions. So he started driving her all the way back. So when they get close to out there, she asked him to turn around and take her back to the other place that she was going. And he was like, okay, because like at this point, he was... (laughs) He was like, whatever this lady is saying, like, I'm just going to do it. So he turns around, drives all the way back to that exact same neighborhood. And as he's getting back to that neighborhood, he starts being able to smell incense from a funeral. But he doesn't see her again. She doesn't make any sound. So the driver stopped his car and he was seeing people starting to like leave this one house. And that's where the smell of like the incense from the funeral was coming from. And so he stopped them and he asked them like, well, what's going on? And they're like, well, of course we're having like a funeral for this young woman who um, has died. And he was like, wait, what young woman has died? So they explained to him that the previous day, This woman who was in their family, who had been sick for a very long time, she had died in the hospital and they had just finished doing the first part of her funeral. And he was like, oh, my goodness, I just picked up a young woman who I think is a ghost and I drove her to this neighborhood. But then I don't understand because she had me drive all the way out to this other neighborhood later and then drive her back here. And they were like. Oh, she had a boyfriend who lived out in that other neighborhood who wasn't able to come here tonight to the funeral. She must have wanted to go be with him to say goodbye. And so they, the family gathers around him and they thank him profusely for helping out this like loved one, this family member of theirs. And they paid for the taxi ride that he had given to their like family member. And So this story is supposedly from the 1950s. Oh, wow. Which I think is really cool. Just again, like what I said is that like, this has been kind of this long. Right. Like this long history of like taxi drivers and ghosts like in their car. And the author of Ghost in the Japanese even says that, you know, there were several times when they got into taxis when they were in Japan and they would, you know, ask the taxi drivers like if they had ever, you know, had a ghost in their backseat. And they said that all of them would always say that they were very relieved that they haven't yet. Uh-huh. But they all felt like it was like inevitable. <laughs> like <laughs> someday, any day now it's going to happen. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's so interesting that like, you know, that what they're saying is like, like, I haven't yet. But I, I've heard these stories, I know these stories, and I feel confident that, like, at some point doing this job, I will probably have, like, a ghost in my backseat. I just remembered 
that at the beginning of this, you asked me what my stance on ghosts and ghost stories was, but you never gave your opinion about where you stand on the ghosts and ghost stories issue. I really loved your answer. I wouldn't categorize myself as like a Christian. And so there's not really like a theological tie-in or reason for me to like believe in ghosts, but I loved that you did tie yours like into this, uh, like a theological uh-huh. reason because ghost stories do like reinforce and tie into like, like theology and are even used in like the stuff with like the reformation and all this stuff, like, you know, throughout history. So like, that was interesting. But yeah, like I go between being like, there are things that I have experienced where I know that they happened to me. And so when I hear other people talking about things that have happened to them, and I want to like discount it by just being like, oh, you're probably, you know, overly tired or medicated Mm. or in deep grief, like whatever it is, like, as much as I want to like discount, you know, maybe like what they're saying, because it seems fantastical. I also know that at the same time, I don't do that to experiences I have because I know that they're real. Like I know I've experienced them. And so I have to believe that other people have experienced something as well. And I mean, that's one reason why like I I love the experienced centered approach to like looking at stories where saying like these people experience something. And so especially with when you look at the long history of like ghost stories around the world (laughs) and then even look at like the history of them in like specific places, it's clear to me that people are experiencing something and we might not have a way to fully explain and articulate yet what people are experiencing the same way that we can with like, you know, we were talking about with like sleep paralysis, mm-hmm. you know, maybe someday we will have a, have a way to identify, you know, what that experience is and like what is causing that. But until then, it is just like fascinating to see how something that can be viewed as so like frivolous or nonsensical, like ghost stories can be such an important vehicle for conversation into like what people believe and like what like culturally they want to like hold on to. So one last quote from Ghosts in the Japanese. Japanese legends are powerful and enduring because they are a concrete articulation of important and deep abstract values. Like poetry, they make feelings and ideas palpable. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar (laughs) 
I can talk for an hour and a half. I just don't know if that's, you know, what other people want to tolerate.